from 2400 Sports, Odyssey, and Major League Baseball. This is the PBP Voices of Baseball. We bring you the people who bring you the game. Welcome into the PBP. So glad to have you. Really excited about the rollout last week of Episode 1 and Joe Buck. How about that guy? Huh? Just a, a really, really good dude. So how many of you are listening for the first time? You? Oh, you in the back. Well, welcome. Welcome. I'm Matt Spiegel. I've done 12 innings of MLB regular season play-by-play. It's a long story. Listen to episode one. But just consider this podcast series a love letter to the craft and a teaching tool and hopefully a vessel for some meaningful baseball-adjacent conversation. Um, Before we get to our guest, anybody remember the Malcolm Gladwell book, Outliers? Um, when it came out in 2008, I was between radio stations because I'm a talk show host, but I was between jobs. I was working Craigslist day jobs to pay the bills. And I remember standing on a ladder working on uh, some gutters, uh, cleaning out some gutters. And I was listening to Gladwell on a podcast or a radio show at the time, I guess, talk about this philosophy that to be a master of any craft at all, you have to put in your 10,000 hours of work and experience. You know about this. This was theoretically true for a chess master or a blacksmith or a talk show host. And my heart sank because I figured at that moment, age 38, I had probably spent anywhere between like two to 5,000 hours being a singer, an improv actor, a talk radio producer, a talk radio host, an FM DJ, Uh, A music talk show producer, uh, a sports writer, a fiction writer, uh, and a day jobber to actually like pay the rent. So I'd done like nine things for 2,000 hours and I was in trouble. I was never going to become a master at anything. But we keep going and maybe the right gig comes along eventually. My point is that now when I am performing in any setting, I am all of those things. I am all of those aspirations, all of those experiences. That's how it works as we get older, folks. Spoiler alert. We bring all of our lessons and sensibilities everywhere we go. Everything we're doing is research. And Jason Benetti, who is the voice of the White Sox, is a kindred spirit in these seemingly innumerable interests and passions. I love this guy. And whenever we talk, it goes all over the place. He's super smart. He's curious about all realms of entertainment and writing, but he's explored all of that while consistently working in play-by-play. He killed it at the Syracuse Broadcast Factory and then got a law degree at Wake Forest while calling multiple sports for multiple outlets. Who does that? Nobody. He's done tons of national college hoops and college football for ESPN, did Olympic baseball for NBC, recently made a big move to Fox Sports nationally, And since 2016, he has been the voice of his childhood favorite team, the White Sox. We get deep in this one, folks. Fair warning. But to start, I have scorecard questions for Jason Benetti on the PBP. So I'm sitting at the ballpark the other day, Benetti, and I'm keeping score as a fan, which is a much more attentive version of me keeping score as opposed to when I'm doing pregame and postgame and frantically getting ready for one inning. As, as, as you know, my entire MLB experience is 11 innings stretched out over 11 games, which is exactly the way to get into the business, I think. Oh, yeah. No, that's uh, what I always tell people when I'm talking to classes is 
do as little of it as possible with as little repetition as possible. You know, the anti-Gladwell people who say, you know, like, forget about 20,000 hours or 15,000 hours. Like, who needs to become a real expert? Just do a little bit of it sometimes, and that'll get you there. That's my thing. I think listening has been its own kind of practice through the years. Um, No, not really. But I I agree with that, but you also have to do it. Yeah, doing both is probably the best way. So I'm keeping score and I'm realizing, oh my God, I still, I remain terrible at this, but I was better and more attentive just sitting at the ballpark and having some quiet. So a couple of questions. Grounder to third, it's a five to three. Then I got a single for Corey Seager. I marked that. Then there's a walk to Nathaniel Lowe. Lowe, I get confused. Life is hard. He's the Lowe, Brandon the Lowe. So then I got a fielder's choice for Adolis Garcia. Seager is out um, on the 6-4-3. Where do I put that? Where do you put that? that? So I need to mark that Seager's out, but Adolis is on base. So I put a little FC next to his little slash line to remind me how he got on. But I score the 6-4-3 as a put out in Seager's box. Obviously, there's no one way to do this, but what do you do? I'm just wondering. So, yeah, it's uh, for me, it's whoever grounded into the fielder's choice. The numbers go in his box. And then the person who's out, there's a, I draw the little diagram, like a little square, the yes. diamond sort of thing. So, right? so I'll, I'll, I'll take him to first base in his box. And then on the other guy's fielder's choice, I draw a line almost to second. And then I slash him out mm-hmm. and end it there. Uh, but, yeah, I, I put the numbers in the player's box who created it. Got you. Um, Joe Buck uses the four color Bic pen. And I know, I think Len Casper does as well. I was using a pencil and I loved the fine point of the pencil. I was able to do so much more detail. Where are you on this spectrum? So uh, do you want to see? Do you, like, do you want? I'll okay, go sure. Thank you. Appreciate that. We're going to dip I, into the bag here because everything's in one room because I'm on the road. Okay. Uh, we're going to dip into the bag, and I'm going to show you this is the handful of pens that I have. Oh, oh God. Yeah. Uh, but for the for the regular plays, the regulation plays, we go uh, Uniball, Signo, Micro, the 207s, hmm. very thin point. Very, very thin to have the same sort of tactile response you're talking about. Yeah. Right? And then I have this pack of pens that's a uniball that's eight colors. And then I use the colors for all sorts of different things. Oh, you do. So all the pens are at your beck and call during the game. I I do, but I have a backup that I haven't really gone to yet. But last year, I don't know if you remember, we were talking about Ethan Katz having that multicolored pen that you have. Yes. Ethan has one over in the dugout. And I asked him what it was for, and he told me the couple things that he uses it for. And we talked about it so much. Uh, his wife, Steph, got me a pack of multicolored pens. Oh, that's so awesome. I carry this with me at this point for good luck, but because I haven't really trained myself on it yet. Like, I like picking up the different color. Uh, but I've always wanted to convert, and uh, this one's made in France. I've, I've always wanted to convert, <laughs> and I would be very happy to convert, and I'm glad to have it. It comes everywhere with me. 
Wow, that's interesting. Yeah, so so um, full true confession here. I use the pen, but I seldom remember to switch the colors as Buck does for like, you know, blue is the K and like red is the walk or whatever. The truth is that I just have it. Maybe by the time I get to like inning 15 of my career, like that's a little further down the road, don't you think? Yeah, it's aspirational. Uh, that 15th inning is really where everything yes. changes, I would say. <laughs> So I've been thinking about that calm. There's like an, uh, an ineffable sense of calm that I feel is an essential part of being an everyday accompaniment to the ball game. I got I to feel like, ah, here I am. And of course you get it with certain old school broadcasters. Hell, I, I learned it listening to Harry Callis on 1210 WCAU in Philly. Um, I didn't realize that's what I was getting, but man, just the low hum that obviously we missed in the pandemic and just the voice. And maybe you could hear the Paul Malls burning in the ashtray. It's possible that I also heard that. But that calm is it's what is it? It's tone. It's pace. Is it rhythm? Because you have that sense of calm, even if you say a lot, because you're thoughtful and you're curious and you talk about stuff and you go where the brain goes and goes where the conversation goes. But how do you maintain that calm and what do you think it is? Yeah, it's over the course of doing a lot of radio games first, but realizing that you can only say one thing at a time. Your brain is not really wired to talk about four things happening in front of you all at the same time. And I think one of the things that people do when they start doing games, and I certainly did, is that I was seeing a whole bunch of actions all together at once. And I was thinking that if I don't say it all right now, I'm going to lose it. So one of the really small things that I like to do every once in a while, just to remember that I can do this, I'll think of something in game and I'll write it down next to me because I need to remind myself that it doesn't have to happen right now. What just crossed my synapses doesn't have to go now. All that means is I thought of it, right? There is a better place for it, almost guaranteed. And so I think the sense of calm comes from knowing that I'm not gonna lose the thread, knowing that there will be time. There's a, uh, there's a Family Guy parody of a Twilight Zone episode at the end of an episode of Family Guy, where Peter's got like one brain cell left, right? And the brain cell falls and breaks his glasses. <laughs> and he's, uh, he's got a book and he goes, no, there was time now. Oh, that's so and, good. And that's, that's kind of how I feel is that there really is always time. People say, don't tell stories with two strikes and two outs. I don't know. We'll get back to it the next half inning. I think that's a level of rigidity we don't need to have because we'll make a joke out of it or a bit out of it. Like, well, we walked right into the wall again back after this. Wow. Oh, I love that. Um, so were you the kid like I was watching Naked Gun when the actor who was also in the Twilight Zone book, uh, Twilight Zone episode, To Serve Man, he's there's a moment, I think it's the end of Naked Gun, where because it's him the whole time, but for whatever reason... They, they they decide to do this reference. There's chaos at the end of the movie, and he walks up to Leslie Nielsen, he grabs him, and he says, it's a cookbook! It's a cookbook! Which is his line that reveals the, the, the plot of To Serve Man. But the fact that they just threw that in for the four or five people in the audience who might have known, mwah, 
That's chef's kiss. Yeah, I mean, you dream of that kind of reference. You make it all the time, frankly. Yeah, well, yeah, it's why I was really frustrated with the final season of Lost on ABC is because they had all of these nuggets that I was following along with. And then they never did anything with them. Yeah. It's the opposite of that. It's a way to get a whole populace angry at you because the yes. first couple seasons of Lost, I think, were killer. But then they never used any of the Easter eggs. It was like the basket was empty for no reason. I, I referred to that to a friend of mine as a narrative Ponzi scheme. <laughs> it, it was it's lost was a narrative Ponzi scheme. It and, was. Yeah, Nobody right, ever and, gets paid. <laughs> he was an improv guy. Uh, Joe Bill, he still teaches improv all around the world. He said, oh, I'm stealing that. I owe you a beer. And he still owes me a beer. So here's here's a thought that I had that I think you will you will uh, um, understand. Hopefully it resonates. Play by play is art, right? It's writing. It is creativity. But it is truly as close to living in the moment as maybe any form of creativity that I can think of. It is, it is so close to actually mindfully being present, and yet it's still art, if that makes sense. And I think that's part of the draw for me. Yeah, it's immediate, right? It's, it's immediate. You color once, and that's it, right? And so that part of it is really interesting. I, I have a former classmate of mine from high school, from HF, named Patrick Bringley. And Patrick just did a book, a memoir of sorts, called All the Beauty in the World. He uh, grew up a fan of art, and he ended up losing his brother at a pretty young age. They were in their 20s. And his brother uh, passes away, and Patrick decided to go become a security guard at the Met, the Metropolitan Museum of Art oh, wow. in New York City. And he has the job for more than a decade, and he wrote a book about how it sort of helped him heal from the loss of his brother. So I ended up back in contact with Patrick, who is a wonderful guy, and I totally recommend the book. I think it's a phenomenal read. But uh, I was texting with Patrick because there's some thought in the book. There's some uh, aside that he has about collaborative art, about people working together on some art piece. Right. It's normally just, you know, this is a Manet and this is a Monet and all that stuff. Right. And we got into this text thread about. Uh, play by play and kind of what it's like in the art world, because when you have a sporting event that's on TV, yeah. the athlete does the thing. Right. But the way it's consumed is with our audio track as well. So we are unwitting collaborators on that moment. And that's why I think it's so important to us to get it right and to say something that does justice to the moment, because it's a little bit like dumping red paint on an already masterpiece item. If you do it wrong, you can also enhance it so much. And Patrick actually uh, described what we do as those little placards underneath the painting. Yes. If you do them right, you can really add a lot of detail and information to the person viewing it. That's and I, beautiful. I, yeah, for the last month, I've kind of been processing that, or three weeks or so since we had the conversation. I've kind of been processing that, but I think it's a really interesting comparison because it's kind of what we do, right? Uh -huh. we, we're adding detail to something that the players, they have no control over what we do, and we have no control over what they do. Yeah. But if we work together and it sort of enmeshes, it is a marvelous thing. 
I, I, I love that. Um, yeah, you're adding context and you're adding you're adding detail and history and but you're also adding your personality, which is why you have to make sure not to be too big or too wacky or to break out into song, you know, just to make. Well, although actually now that I'm thinking about it, but just it, you don't want to distract from the magic of the moment. The game is the star. We're all there for the game and, and the game is the star. Um you know, it, it, it's really interesting because it's it's more constant than the placard or than the art um, voiceover uh, on on the tracks as you walk around. You're there the whole time. You are the guide in all of those moments. You have to alert people constantly. This might be a moment. So thank God for the construct of the inning and the pitch. And, you know, those things, it really does set you up for mindfully. Here's my moment to collaborate in that way. Yeah, and you, you, but you always have to thinking about what don't I know, right? Like what what isn't hitting me at this moment? What can I go find out tomorrow? What is yeah. making this moment more interesting in the dugout than we even know? Mm-hmm. You know, there's always another, there's always a second layer of like why somebody's frustrated, why somebody's laughing, why all that is happening. And that's why the research interpersonally is so important because if you don't do that, it'll just be another, uh, another sort of facsimile of another painting. Yeah, that makes all the sense in the world. Talking to Jason Benetti. So I have seen you in the clubhouse recently, just in the past week. I had a great quick moment with Tim Anderson where like I told I was able to tell him, man, it was so, so cool seeing Mark DeRosa believe in you and come around on you within like three days of the World Baseball Classic. And he laughed and he goes, it's about effing time, you know, like because he's him and he's so incredible. And I thought, I want to pat myself on the back. Hey, look at me. Talk show host. I'm in the clubhouse. Got a real connective moment there. And then you walk over and you have you're just you're just hanging out talking to the man for like eight or ten minutes. He's obviously a fascinating and ebullient and energetic, um, passionate human. But that interaction, I mean, you've had that with dozens and dozens and dozens of ballplayers, I'm sure. What is the value of kind of empathetically connecting with a ballplayer to the job that you do? Yeah, I mean, for me, it's getting to the core of who the person is and why they're interesting to watch and why they're them. Right. If you if you don't talk to somebody and I know that I've been guilty of that and every announcer has a couple people that they just don't really connect with or whatever it might be, you can't really fully flesh out why all of this is important to them and why it matters to them and why they are somebody that we should care about. But, you know, in the end. Yes, a great quote is a great quote, and writers need those. They thrive on those. And great stories are the backbone for some of the questions that I ask, right? Somebody will write a story, and I'll ask another question following up on that or whatever it might be. But to me, the the core of Hold all on, of let that, me write that down. Let me write that down for my future interactions. Read other people's work. Yeah, Don't just steal. think of your own stuff. Steal from the best. Steal, yeah. steal as much as you can. Uh, but I, I, I do think you get to know people so that you can caption their moments when they happen the right way. Not uh, there's no real right way, but the most emotionally impactful way. No, the there way- is, there is a right way. I know I'm interrupting you sometimes. I, I, I do that. I apologize. But like when I'm thinking of when TA, when Tim Anderson, when we found out that he was having pasta after home runs, you know, and, and I, I feel like I learned that free from you 
and it became part of your call. Was it spaghetti time after he would homer or whatever you would say? It's like th that adds a whole nother layer and there's realness. And then if you get to talk to him after the game, you take it further. What kind of spaghetti? What are we doing? What sauce? Right? Yeah, it's it's make sure that this player isn't the same as every other player. Because the last thing I want to be is the same as every other person who's doing the job. And you're the same way. I mean, you and Danny working together, like you're two people who do the job differently than anybody else in the world. And that's what a good partnership should be. And that's what a good announcer should be. And that's what a good player should be. So if we don't know the difference between all 25, 26 guys, however many, I think we're doing it wrong. What is part of your prep? that you absolutely cannot ignore. Like I have to do this before every single game or I will not feel the way I need to feel. Yeah, when I'm not in the clubhouse because I had this obligation or that obligation or I had to run to the ballpark because something, you know, some emergency happened or whatever it might be, I would say it's 90% of the games that I'm in the clubhouse, but I definitely feel worse about doing the game when I haven't been in the clubhouse, when I haven't been around the players, whatever it might be. And so that's why 2021 was so gutting to me. And I think to a lot of people who do the job in that way, because when I am not in the clubhouse, I feel like I don't know what's going on. And I feel like I don't have anything of value to add because everybody can get every story that's already out there. Far and away, my favorite moment of the pandemic baseball season and I'm so glad that it happened, even in its absurd fashion, uh, because there was so much that came out of it. Obviously, your White Sox in the playoffs, the Cubs in the playoffs, et cetera. But far and away, the best moment was the Lucas Giolito no-hitter. When I was home playing cards and drinking wine with my wife and had you guys on in the background, and like any good no-hitter, the tension builds, the excitement builds, and it was a slow burn hanging out with you and Stoney the entire time and enriched for me personally, because I knew how important James McCann was to the development of the pitching infrastructure and to Lucas himself. And I knew about Lucas's transformation. So all of that, but so deeply enriched by, by us not being together. I, I mean, describe that, that moment and how that all came together. If you would. I'm going to work backward here. Please. Because I, I want to say this, but I don't want to break anybody's confidence. But about 1230 in the morning, I was restless. I wasn't sleeping. About 1230 in the morning, I got a text from a player who was part of it. It wasn't Lucas, but I got a text from a player that said, I just watched the replay. That was awesome. Nobody's here to watch, but everyone at home has their hearts in their throats. On 0-2 to right field, Adam Engel is there! A no-hitter! The 19th in White Sox history! And so if, if I've encapsulated the person, Steve and I have encapsulated the person, our entire crew has encapsulated the person, and I start with I because I'm the one that got the text message, but if we've done that job and I got that note from that player, that means that we did something that was powerful in some way, powerful enough to get that note, which I adore and I will cherish for a long, long time. That's but really beautiful. Let, let me pause you there because I, I was in tears with my wife standing. We actually we walked across the room to get as close to the television as we could. And we stood there with our glasses of wine 
toasting to I'm getting chills thinking about it. Just seeing them celebrate and just being feeling a part of it. And look, she's a meatball baseball fan. It's one of the things I adore about her. We didn't go to any games that year. Nobody did. That was as close as we got that that night. Yeah, man, I it was it was as emotional as I've been about a game probably ever because I knew how much not being at games meant to some people who had opening day streaks broken and all that stuff. I mean, we, we were living in a really, really curious, questionable, where are we going to go from here as a society kind of time? I mean, there was just so much in all of our hearts and it was just sitting right below the surface. And that moment, that inning, that whole thing, and great job by our crew to stay for Lucas coming back out to the mound in the ninth inning. We just totally banged a break and didn't do it. Mm. And just to watch him go through all of that with the backdrop of him being truly, and he'd tell you, the worst pitcher in baseball and as a starter in 2018. Yes. yes. Like the fact that he had worked so hard to get to that point, it's just – we all felt like him, I think, in some ways. Like, we all were going through the worst years of our lives. Mm-hmm. And then this guy who just had the worst year of his life two years ago <laughs> made the best moment of the season. Yeah, yeah. It, it's it's very, very true and, uh, and special. So tell me, I'm, 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 I'm toggling between a list of questions that I wrote before this whole podcast began that I thought I'd use as like a, uh, a thread through the entire thing and some specific Benetti stuff in another file that I prepped at three in the morning because I couldn't sleep. Um, so let me go to the thread through uh, area here. And you can tell the difference between these because these have nothing to do with you. Uh, one broadcaster you admired in your youth. Yeah, I, I know it's been well written and oft written, but I really was a huge Hawk Harrelson fan. I on my DVR in college, and I may have said this publicly once or twice, but like on my DVR in college was the Timo Perez play where he came around first base and scored from first on a ball in the gap. And Hawk yelled, come on, Timo, from second base on. Ball hit hard into the gap. Come on, Timo. Come on, Timo. Come on, Timo. Come on, Timo. Here's the throw. I must have played that about a hundred <laughs> times on my TiVo at 831 Livingston in Syracuse, New York. I just loved it. I adored it. I mean, wow. you grow up with it and it's just like, it's pure passion, pure emotion. I, hey, I man. Just, I love that, that, it. That's beautiful. You're, you're making me think of, I'm a little older, but in when, when uh, Dave Henderson homered off Donnie Moore in 1986 in the ALCS, Al Michaels said, Deep to left and Downing goes back and she's gone. And Al Michaels exploding like that. I had that on VHS and played it time and time and time again. It's such a sonic experience, right? Like watching games is such a sonic experience. You're living and dying with these voice modulations and all of this stuff. I mean, it's I love watching the NBC show The Voice. Because I think there are like little tweaks you can make and little things you can do that make people hit their button. And it's a beautiful thing. I mean, it's just an absolutely beautiful thing. So, you know, Hawk. And then I would I would sit and listen to guys do radio play by play off the Yahoo College Sports app 
uh, in like the early 2000s when I was in college. So I believe I that uh, technology is what Mark Cuban used to become a billionaire. By the way, he yeah. sold it. He sold it to Yahoo, I believe, is how the I think first that's one right. Down. I think that's right. And God love him because that kind of made my career. I, I listened to so many hours of Matt LaPay of the Wisconsin Badgers. <laughs> I revere him as a play-by-play announcer. I've listened to so much Wayne Larravee do football on the radio. I, you know, I, I used to do a bad Jeff Joniak impression, right? Like I used to walk around my house in college and say like, first down at 10 for the Bears, Hester slot left, you know, sort of thing. And Devin Hester, you are ridiculous, right? And I like I just love the sounds of people doing radio. Like I I used to like do a bad Joel Myers impression. The guy oh. who did Sunday night football on the radio. The, so the best. I, yeah, like first and ten. Like, you know, he's just like very straightforward down here. Bob Trumpy, how are you? You know, sort of thing. And but I I I listen to all these guys and it's you know, I it didn't really I didn't really comprehend the fact that it was like the dorkiest thing ever that you could turn on a radio announcer in like the Patriot League. And I'd be like Bob Sosi from Navy <laughs> in like five seconds. That's amazing. See, it, it, it is. Well, we're all dorks about whatever we're into. You know, that's that's how it, that's how it works. Remember the uh, trivia show Beat the Geeks? I loved that show. Yeah, because and they had like medals and stuff that you'd yes, win, right? Yes, but there was like there was a theater geek. I think there was like a like a, a music geek. Uh, I don't even I don't remember if there was a sports geek or not. I think I I don't think there was. I think I was offended that there wasn't a sports geek because it's just the same thing. That's all it is. Yeah, it's know? it's just a different. It's like star wars in one corner sports in the other corner like i yes. i used to be able to name all of the mascots like the team nicknames of every division one college basketball school oh wow yeah wow, I, what a cool dude so you mentioned laravie laravie has a trick for and maybe i only know it because i use my voice as much as i do as you do uh i sing as as you do um and laravie instead of going when he gets excited and he would say, God, who is it? Uh, junior. God, he played for Indiana. I can't remember it, but it was like, Bob McElwee. He like gets into the back of his throat in a way that doesn't damage the cords. It's like Roger Daltrey doing, ah! but instead Larravee goes, oh, and creates that little rattle in the back of the throat. Casper does it too. And it, it maintains uh, voice health in an ingenious way. I don't know whether it was born of that, but I guarantee you those guys wouldn't sound as good as they are, especially Wayne, if he hadn't picked that up along the way. I had, I, you know, I had that guttural thing and I was overusing it for a while back in the day when I was doing radio. And then I had a call of a White Sox play over the last couple of days. I want to say it was a home run in Pittsburgh. And I got that sort of guttural vibrato situation. I was like, oh, it's back. What are we doing? What's happening? So you would not be surprised by this, I don't think, Jason Benetti, that these are the common elements personality-wise that keep coming up. Kindness, because as a play-by-play guy, the kindness... I believe karmically that it comes back around, but it's also, it's how you learn things from players, from colleagues, et cetera, being open and kind and available. And then boundless curiosity. Um, Pat Hughes told me that his father used to read his uh, middle school textbooks for fun. 
I loved that nugget so much. And like, and Pat and his brother would be like, dad is reading your book for fun. What's wrong with him? And now Pat at in his late sixties, the Ford Frick award winner is reading everything he can every single day, because that's just in there. So kindness and, and boundless curiosity would not surprise you to be commonalities. I would assume. No, I mean, I like the people I, aspire to be like all are very curious people and are very witty people and that sort of thing i look i went to law school for fun which you know again like with the combine that combine that with the listening to all the college radio people makes me a real good prom date but i would say like that that level of curiosity is necessary because if you don't know where to add value or how to find things out that people don't know. It gets really stale really fast. It just does nowadays. I remember um, texting you about setting something up. I think it was when we were doing uh, that good comp, bad comp thing, uh, which was great fun and people can check out. I'll put a link in the attached to this somewhere. But anyway, you were prepping to do a lacrosse game. And I was stunned that you still did lacrosse and with your ever expanding schedule, and I said, you're doing a lacrosse game still? Because, and, and, and do you remember what you said? Do you remember what your response was? I've never forgotten it. I loved it. I so love it. I have an affinity for the sport. Oh, I said that? Yeah. I have an affinity for the sport. You love it. You love it. You, you, you love the game. It's a cool ass game, right? It's fun. And there's, there, there are unique stories that people haven't heard. And you get to like use your brain in a different way and all that stuff. I mean, it's why I did like five AAA hockey games in Syracuse and the guy who I was filling in for, who now is the Las Vegas Golden Knights radio guy, Dan Duva, just a tremendous broadcaster and really thinks about this stuff very deeply. He listened to it and he was like, I mean, the, the subtext was, you don't know what the hell you're doing, <laughs> but you used a lot of different words that I've never thought about using in a hockey game. Because I was just like, you know what? Whatever it looks like, I'm going to say it. It's a total no-lose situation. Um, a great play-by-play -play person has to be a technician and an entertainer both. Uh, people come at this from different angles. As you know from our conversations and my reality, uh, I come at it from an entertainer perspective, trying to figure out the mechanics on the fly. Again, a great plan. But where did you start on that scale and where do you think you are now between a technician at the craft and an entertainer at the craft? Super hard to do entertainer first, technician second. Really, 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 really hard because you know that it's not all about technique already. What, what I learned and so many have learned, whether coming through Syracuse or Mizzou or whatever, technique first lays a foundation and then you stop using brain power on technique because you trust that the skeleton is there right i trust that i'm going to say a player's name before his action right on the radio i trust that i'm going to say the location of the ball doing basketball on radio because i've done 500 of them technique wise i was a million percent technique when i left college it was all about exactly you know what word i was choosing and whether or not i said time and score enough and all of this and at some point when you're only grading yourself on that you're just rearranging deck chairs it's not on the titanic this the the craft is seaworthy as bob wiley would say hmm. but it doesn't get you anywhere that's unique you have to figure out what you actually is you know what the whole 
ethos that you create can be, what your thing is, who you are, what you love to do. And so when it stopped being just about technique, and that does not mean I've discarded it because I watch games and I'm like, oh, this and that and this and that, and you could do this and you could do it's It's about technique for sure, for sure. But you have to be, you know, the... By the way, I just did Kevin Brown from the Orioles impersonation of me where I interrupt a thought of mine and I start a new <laughs> sentence. That's literally what Kevin's impression. Uh, like if you run into Kevin while the Orioles in town, he'll be like, you know, I would. Well, the thing about that is, you know, I just and it's ridiculous because it's absolutely what I do. I love that. I, I, I have to interrupt to tell you, I told you that we saw Carrot Top in Vegas and had a chance yes. to hang out, hang out with the top, as, as I call him now. And nobody ever had. So I like that. But I told him because it was me and Danny, Danny Parkins, my radio partner, you mentioned earlier, and our producers. And we have this sense of improv and this yes and that we do for each other in a live talk show setting or you do as partners that you and Steve Stone do so well, just adding and augmenting. He's up there alone doing it with the five different voices in his head they were like they were just having constant conversations he'd make a joke and then be like oh that's too crass why are you doing that hey that guy's laughing you're gonna laugh again sir blah 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 like he just just constantly so improv with yourself sometimes it's all you got jason and that's okay it really is i people think i'm crazy sometimes i'll send a note to somebody who who sent me a tape i think one of the most important things to do in play-by-play is hear yourself you hear what you just said and can work off the tone of what you just said, because what I thought I said might not have the same meaning if I say it a certain way, and then I can react to that going the next direction. But what I was gonna say is, I the song in Dear Evan Hansen, the second song on the soundtrack is called Waving Through a Window, and it's yes. just about how he's invisible, Ben Platt is invisible, Evan Hansen. And the first line of it is, I've learned to slam on the brake before I even turn the key. I think quite often when we go into a performance industry, but we're not really performers, like I didn't have a theater background or anything, and I don't think a lot of sports announcers do. uh, I think you go into the technique and you delve into it because it's safe, because you don't have to color outside of any lines. You just live in the workbook. And I think when you learn that you are doing that for safety's sake in some way, that's when you can bust through it. Boy, that, that, that's really interesting. Um, love the reference with Evan Hansen, of course. But thinking about that, yeah, so once you l- realize that your technique is so solid that you're just staying safe with it, then you can go ahead and let yourself be weird and kind of start to exploit your own brand of weird, right? Yeah, because, because if you only grade yourself on the technique, you can't get higher than 10 right? Like you can, you can use the right word at the right time. You can say the time and score enough. You can describe the heck out of it and talk about the pitcher's numbers and all that stuff. At some point, then you're just doing what everybody else has done, Mm. but that's so safe. I mean, that is really comfortable and safe, but it's not anything novel. It just, it's, it's what you're being, you're being a copy of some of like a combination of a lot of people. All right. So give me a moment that you loved in the booth that we could go pull and listen to. First thing that comes to mind that you're comfortable with everyone hearing, take me anywhere else that comes to mind, a moment that you loved that you did in the booth. Yeah, this spring training, Stoney and I, I mean, people saw it, I think, but the conversation about his vocations. Well, it was unique. Let me put it to you that way. I didn't do it very long because it seemed a little depressing, actually. You know, yeah, you got to go in the house saying, you don't look too healthy today, so let me pass this by it. That's literally what you did in the offseason? Yeah. 
So what was your pitch to people? <laughs> well, <laughs> if it's going to happen, you might as well plan ahead. So okay. along those lines. So what deal were you offering these people oh. who you were being entirely rude to? Well, we couldn't go a two-for-one deal. That's never any good. So <laughs> we just went, you know, just get it now because the price of funerals were going up. Okay. Yeah, that was pretty much so it. So there was funeral inflation that you were trying to stave off on behalf of your future clients. Exactly right. Yeah, it wasn't a great job, but you had to pick up a few bucks wherever you could, you know. How did you select <laughs> your clientele? Did you go door to door? They gave you a list of, I guess, people People have been sick recently. I don't know. Exactly. Yeah, it said, hey, look. There is a 0% <laughs> chance this doesn't end up on awful announcing. 0% chance. I mean, what? What? Are, what? What? He Like, that's very him. And then he said he was part of the welcome wagon. And I just think that that range, right? I mean, that range, you talk about a full catalog of empathy and then the very opposite of it. Uh, he can do both. <laughs> And I, I thought that was hilarious. I mean, I just, I, I've enjoyed a lot of moments we've done. And it's, real, it's really hard to think of one from back in the day, but I, I know they're all sitting there, right? Sure. I, a lot of the times when we revisit something from the day before, and we have these killer sequences where our crew is right on board with stuff we're talking about. But that's the one recently that I'm just like, man, that is, it's so great because it's just hilarious and it's totally organic. We've never talked about that ever. Yeah, no, I, I, I love that because that's an example of, of a real partnership and just being comfortable and going wherever you go and of the endless uh, options for conversation that, that the ballpark and the ball game provides. Um, Jason Minetti, you're the best. I could talk to you for hours and days about a million different things. Thank you for being you, sir, and thank hey, you for Hey, thank this. you, Matt. I'm really glad you're doing this. It's a very cool idea. Encouragement accepted, Benetti. Thank you. Uh, boy, Jason is is just an amazing working example of how a broadcaster could be somebody who brings a crazy range of intellectual and comedic sensibilities, right? That guy could be a force as a talk show host. Get out of my lane, Jason. Or as a columnist or even a politician, if that's what he wanted to do. Um, so, so look, I really believe that play-by-play -play is as close to true mindfulness as any form of creativity, like Jason and I talked about in there. You're describing and enriching the moments to listeners as quickly as possible. This centers you as a broadcaster and centers the listener in a time when it's never been easier to lose focus with our phones or anything else. You're really trying to give justice to the moment, like Jason said. When I do a talk show and I lose focus, a partner can cover for me or I can make a joke about what I was doing instead of listening. Not at a ball game. It's an extra level of focus. It's why I try to keep score every time I watch a game these days. Give it a shot if you haven't at a ballpark or from home or on the coffee table. I always do it for sure a day or two in advance whenever I'm practicing for my own play-by-play -play opportunities. You'll never feel more connected to a game. Plus, it's cool. It's, it's a truly unique visual language that still allows a lot of room for your own expression because as long as you understand what you're doing, that works. Okay, next week on the PBP, man, I'm psyched for this one. Dave Sims 
of the Seattle Mariners. Talk about an amazing life in broadcasting. He was a TV and radio talk show host in New York City in the 80s. Incredible stories from that. And just wait until you find out who helped elevate his career as a play-by-play guy. His work in Seattle over the last 18 years, I think it is, has been so great, especially down the stretch last season as they made the playoffs. That's a guy who really understands the balance between technician and entertainer. Thanks for listening to the PBP. My producer is Ryan Porth. My collaborator is James Vickery. The theme music comes from the great Kurt Morrison of Tributosaurus. You can find the PBP, Voices of Baseball, on the Odyssey app and wherever you get your podcasts. It's a production of 2400 Sports, Odyssey, and Major League Baseball. If you have just found this, please rate and review and subscribe because that is how we grow. I'm Matt Spiegel, and this has been the PBP Voices of Baseball. I'll bring you the people who bring you the game.